spirit of reconciliation, I acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples today. Welcome to Totally Lit, the podcast celebrating reading, writing and creating literature. I'm your host, Kai Garvey. Thank you for listening. This episode, I have the amazing Ashley Callagian Blunt. She is the author of How to Be Australian and My Name is Revenge. Her writing appears in the Sydney Morning Herald, Overland, Griffith Review, Sydney Review of Books, Australian Book Review, Kill Your Darlings and more. Ashley teaches creative writing and co-hosts James and Ashley Stay at Home a podcast about writing, creativity and health. Originally from Canada, she has lived and worked in South Korea, Peru and Mexico. I hope you enjoy our chat. Ashley, welcome to Totally Lit. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me today. I'm super excited to um, get to chat with you. Um, I was reading through your bio and you're an all-rounder. You're winning awards everywhere. You've got books everywhere. (laughs) You're a podcaster. How are you doing it all? (laughs) (laughs) That's such a funny question because I don't feel like I'm doing very much. Like I feel like a bio takes a lot of things that you do over time and then compresses it into one paragraph. So well done. You've done a good job with your bio because it well, looks you. amazing. I'm like, thank oh, you very wow. much. <laughs> uh, now, your book, Dark Mode, it was released on the 1st of March. Um, can you tell me a bit about the book, please? Yes. Dark Mode is a psychological thriller with a dark web plot. It is set over a sweltering summer in Sydney. The main character, Regan Carson, runs a boutique garden center where she grows very strange and unusual plants because she relates more to plants than she does to people. And that's because she's had some bad experiences with people in the past that have given her some trust issues. Uh, in the first chapter, she goes out for her morning run and near her home, she discovers the body of a woman who's clearly been murdered and who looks very much like her which makes her Ooh. concerned that her past is catching up with her. Okay. So she's got a past that she's worried about by the sounds of that. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yes. Oh, she sounds the opposite of me. I can't keep plants alive. But... <laughs> I have that's kept my children too. alive though. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably more important. Um, and how did you get into writing that genre? Um, is that something you've always been interested in writing? I've always loved crime fiction and crime thrillers. And so I very much wrote this for fellow crime fiction fans. So if people are, you know, crime thriller fans, psychological thriller fans, I really wrote this book for them. And I, um, it's been really rewarding seeing it start to connect with that readership now that it's been out for a few weeks. Um, but I got into it because I, uh, I, I had been writing other things. I've been writing mainly nonfiction mm-hmm. and I wanted to try writing a novel. I tried a couple of novels when I was younger. They weren't crime fiction. They also weren't publishable. They were terrible. Um, but this time I, uh, I, I'd gotten sick. I'd gotten diagnosed with a chronic illness in 2017 and I ended up spending a couple of years mostly bed bound and I'm still continuing to recover today. Right. And in that time that I was sick, I filled a lot of the time listening to just hundreds and hundreds of hours of true crime podcasts. Yes, I love them. Yes, yes. (laughs) yes. So that was sort of 
When I sat down to write the novel, I realized I had a lot of crime narratives and crime information that had sort of been composting away in my brain. So then I thought, okay, I could, I think I can try this. I think I'm ready to try this genre. And I went into it very much as an experiment, like as a, let's see if I can, you know, if I can make this work. And yeah, it was really exciting to see it get published and to come out into the world. So I have to ask you, what is your favorite true crime podcast? Oh, Women in Crime, without a doubt. There's a U.S. podcast. Yeah, you listen to it. Yeah, it's great. U.S. podcast, Women in Crime. It's two criminologists. And so they present this really, I don't want to say academic because that makes it sound dry, which it's not, but this really intelligent, analytical Mm. approach to crime. uh, And I just find it really fascinating. That's um, it's interesting because I've listened to a lot of podcasts um, and I find myself steering to the more journalistic type true crime podcasts. Um, I sort of I'm not really a fan of the ones that are a bit jokey, um, and I'm like, oh, this, these are real people. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm yeah finding myself more attracted to the podcasts where they're respectful of the actual victim. Um, mm-hmm. So I've um, at first I used to listen to everything, but then I've become more selective on what I listen to. Um, yeah. But I I'm also attracted more to these crimes that haven't been solved. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. So I think mm. I just like a good mystery. Right. Um, so it, it intrigues me when, when they can't figure out what's happened. Um, yeah. And there's some crimes that will never be solved just because they were too long ago as well. Yes, um, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's also fascinating how many crimes they are now able to go back and start to solve in some cases where they have some DNA evidence. Yeah, or and they if can... people sign up to the um to find their relatives online yes. and, and they then find out that they're related to a killer <laughs> yes yes it's also interesting it, it's a it's yeah it is good that some can be solved so what were you writing before you uh, tried the the crime you would you've got one how to be australian that which you've yeah. written as well did that come about because you've come to australia from uh from canada Yes, exactly. So uh, my first book actually is called My Name is Revenge, which is uh, a collection. It's actually a novella and collected essays about the Armenian genocide and its historical connections to Australia, which I wrote because my great grandparents were survivors of the Armenian genocide. So I started to research their story and I ended up spending from when I started that book to when it was published was nine years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it took a very long time. Um in part because partly I didn't have the skills when I started in terms of like crafting a narrative that was compelling and engaging. So I had all the enthusiasm and I had the research skills because I had a, a bachelor's of journalism, but I didn't have the writing skills in terms of shaping, particularly like a long form uh, narrative, because there's, there's, there's so much that goes into that, that you, you know, working behind the scenes. So that was my first book. And that would and have then, been a heavy workload as well with the theme. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah genocide is referred to as the crime of crimes. Mm. And it's, I mean, there's a lot of dark stuff in dark mode, but I, yeah, it's about 10 years studying the genocide. I wrote two master's theses on it. Like I, um, you know, interviewed people whose family members, you know, who lost their entire families in the genocide. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think that I, I was able to do that because I was, 
so interested in in the topic and in the le- like in the legacy that the genocide presents today. Mm. Um, it's still very like geopolitically, it's it's uh, very important. Like there's all kinds of things with it that we don't realize how important it was to 20th century history and the impact mm. that it's still having today. Um, so that pushed me to do that research and to write that book and to keep working on it until I managed to get it out in a very different form to what I initially conceived of it as. Uh, but I learned a lot through that process. So then I think to counterbalance that, I ended up writing this memoir about how when I moved from Canada to Australia, I thought that Australia was just hot Canada, which it turns well, out it's not. I think we kind of think of, of Canada as, as cold Australia, cold Australia as well. We, we do uh, have a fondness for Canada and, and your people in Canada. Um yeah. I think we have a very similar outlook to life, but well, um, this is the thing that there is there are so many commonalities for sure, and I think that's what's deceptive about it. Is we think, oh, there's so many commonalities, and therefore, like the differences don't like if they're there, they don't matter, mm-hmm. and they kind of don't. But then when I think the thing was that we'd moved here on a one year visa, and then we ended up staying sort of indefinitely after that. And I was in this sort of limbo where, you know, we were here on my husband's work visa and I didn't have a job. So then I was just like, oh, like, what is my identity now mm. that I, I that I'm unemployed and that I'm sort of, you know, here, like, indefinitely. So I ended up really exploring like what it means to develop a new national identity as an adult, like consciously and by choice. And um, within that explored, you know, how wonderful and wacky Australia is in so, <laughs> so many ways. Um, I've scared a lot of people with my with my perception of iced vovos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was a very that book. And at the time, I was also I was doing stand up comedy. So I was I was moving in. I thought it was moving into into a comedic space, which mm. is something I've always really loved. But then what changed that was that I got sick. And one of the things that happened when I got sick is I really lost the ability to write humor. Like I still I still have a sense of humor. I still enjoy comedy, but I cannot I write humor. Say, I don't think that I saw comedy in the bio. Yeah, well, that's You've so hard. Australian me. is a comedic work. But other than that, <laughs> no, I don't I don't do any comedy anymore. I can't imagine anything more terrifying than being a comedian. Um, I'm kind of accidentally funny. Like I'll be, yeah, when I try to be funny or yeah. try to write comedy, it just falls flat. But I, I make my husband laugh. So that's, Aww. I'm like, well, I have an audience of one. Um, <laughs> that's important in a marriage. Yeah, laughter's important. But um, yeah, I find the idea of public speaking very um, daunting. So I'm like, why would anyone want to be a comedian? <laughs> And you have to be on all the time. But, um, but I'm overcoming it. I've actually found the podcast has been really a good way for me to build confidence. And I, oh. now now when I'm having to speak in front of an audience, it's much easier. Um, oh, so that, that's excellent. Surprise I wasn't expecting from the podcast. But... That's, oh, that's great. Well, I'm glad you're developing that comfort. And I have a tip for anyone who wants to, um, you know, get used to public speaking and find it easier because I was in, uh, in involved with the Toastmasters public speaking mm. club for five years. And that was another thing that ended when I got sick. But um, 
so I have I have a theory. I'm sure there's science to back this up, but I think that you know, back tens of thousands of years, for our brains, if we were in a situation where there were a lot of eyeballs on us, it probably meant that we were in danger, like we were about to get eaten by a pack of wolves or something, right? That's why I want to go run. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and that's totally normal. And you can convince your brain that you're safe just mm. through exposure therapy. Just if you have a chance. I think the other thing is a lot of us don't do public speaking regularly. So then we do it and it's really scary. And then we're like, oh, well, I can't do it. I'm not good at this. It's too scary. But if you have a place where you can go and practice in a friendly environment, you can actually get your brain. You know, in six months, you can get your brain to be like, oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. Like, mm. I'm going to stand up and talk and everybody's going to smile at me and they're going to listen to what I have to say. And then... I'll be done. So yeah, that's that's my tip for anyone who struggles with that. That's me. Although I'm much better than I was, and I'm I'm actually learning myself how to develop a new identity. Where for a long time I was like, oh no, I can't do that. Whereas now I'm like, I'll think of the things that you're missing out on if you don't do that. And so I've been pushing myself and sort of discovering the things I can do. Whereas before. I would have missed out on all those opportunities because I was too worried about feeling anxious in front of people. So, oh, so it's getting that. much better. And um, that's actually, I write about that in How to Be Australian as well because I ended up developing quite a lot of anxiety. I think I'd always had anxiety, but then in that vacuum where I didn't have a job, the anxiety really ratcheted up. And when I'm living in this country where I thought, oh, I'm supposed to be having fun and going to the beach and, you mm. know, it's the country of no worries – and I felt worried all the time. That was one of the challenges that I had really had to overcome in terms of feeling comfortable in Australia. Mm. Now, you said you've overcome chronic illness. Um, mm. Did your writing help you through that process? Or is the writing a just a byproduct of, of, the, of having time? It's so interesting that you asked that because I am currently writing an essay for uh, Open Book, which is the uh, State Library of New South Wales magazine, about creativity and wellness, mm. which I pitched because I, I felt that um, I was so lucky that I had been working on developing a writing practice for a number of years before I became sick. And I was in the midst of a couple of big projects when I became sick, one of which was how to be Australian, actually. Mm. And so when I became sick, I was I was so unwell that for a couple of months, I just I, like literally could do almost nothing. And I, I became functionally illiterate because I could read words, but I couldn't hold the beginning of a sentence long enough in my mind to remember it by the time I got to the end. Oh, wow. So it was just like I would start reading and I just have to keep starting over and over and over. And I just, mm. yeah. There were days where, like, I my cognitive fatigue was so bad that I, like, I'd be trying to write down numbers and I would be sitting there thinking, like, how do you write the number eight? Like, what does that look like? And having to really, like, concentrate on it. Um, so what happened was as I started to recover, which is still a process that I'm in now, but as I started to recover from that extreme situation, I would have little pockets of 15 minutes or 20 minutes um, in a day where I could do some, where I could sit and work on my project and, you know, maybe uh, edit one page or something like that. And that was such a relief. It was such a relief to do something 
that I had done before I got sick yep. and to escape into the writing. Like when I was working on the writing, I wasn't thinking about all the things I'd lost. I wasn't thinking about how sick I was. Mm. Um, it was this thing that was really meaningful to me. And uh, I just, this afternoon, I interviewed a, an art therapist and she was talking about how she uses art therapy with her clients and, and talking about how, you know, we are creatures that create, like that's what we mm. do as humans. Like that might be art or it might be, you know, like building a car engine or it might be whatever. Um, but we're, we are all creative beings. And so being able to connect with my creativity in, 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 you know, I couldn't leave the apartment and I couldn't sit up very long and I had to be in total quiet and writing was a thing I could do in those conditions. Mm. And so I think that really, really helped um, keep my mental health intact uh, through through those really hard years was that mm. I was in the middle of those projects and I was able to just keep advancing them little by little. And then I was diagnosed in 2017. My first book came out in 2019. It had been mostly written prior to me getting sick. And then um, How to Be Australian came out in 2020. And so by 2019, 2020, I was able to do revisions on it. I was able mm. to do the copy edit and the proofread and, and to get it out into the world. And that was, you know, that was very hard. I was doing almost nothing else other than working. I was working about eight hours a week at that time. And that was my whole life was just doing a little bit of work for my paid job and doing a little bit of work on the writing and getting out into the world and doing basically nothing else. And how are you finding it now that you're in recovery and you've got so much happening all at once at the moment? Is, yeah. is that okay? Is it, um... it's, it's, been, it's been hard. It's, it's two things because it's been really exciting, right? Like it's mm. so exciting. Like dark mode is a new level of, um, ah, it's, it's, it's at a new level compared to my previous mm. books because it's, because it's a commercial book, because it's, um, come out as a lead title because it's connecting with a bigger readership. You know, there was in here in Sydney in the, in the Dimmick's window on George street, they did a big display. Oh, exciting. It was, really, oh, wow. it was really exciting. And like, it's there's stacks and stacks of it, like at the airport. And like, so it's, it's been incredibly exciting. And that excitement has helped give me more energy right now. Yeah. Mm. Um, but also, you know, I have, I've definitely done more the first two weeks of March. I did more than I have done at any point since I got sick in 2017. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely me pushing myself. And so the, this past week, cause now we're, we're into the third week of March now when we're recording this, um, I, it's, it was definitely, I've been spending a lot of time in bed recovering from that. Mm -hmm. So, but that's, that's okay. Like I knew that would happen. Um, and it was totally worth it. So it's been, it's been really good having, having such a, wonderful thing happened and I feel so so lucky that you know um my agent was so excited about this book that Ultimo Press was so excited about this book that readers now have been really excited about this book mm. so it's uh that's yeah that's really been such a bright light in my life at the moment so that's definitely helped is your condition a lifelong condition or will you recover fully that's a great question because I, I think, and this is definitely, I, I thought that chronic fatigue syndrome was a lifelong 
mm. condition. Um, but what the doctors told me when I got diagnosed was that, in fact, the average time to recovery is three to five years. And they said okay. either you'll get you'll fully recover or you'll get to about 90 percent of your energy mm. levels. And you might just always need a bit more rest than other people your age. Um, now, they said three to five years. At the outset, 10, like there's outliers, you know, people who can take up to 10 years. And then if it lasts longer than that, they said, then there's something else underlying it. Then it's yeah. it's presenting as chronic fatigue syndrome, but there's something else causing it that we probably just don't understand yet. And talking to people, a lot of people, the most common way they get or they end up with chronic fatigue syndrome is that they've had glandular fever and then mm. that manifested into chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and some people recover in like nine months, like they, you know, they have quite bad fatigue and then and then they just and then they're fine um so i didn't get as sick as some people get some people get very very sick and i mean i got quite sick but not as bad as not as extreme as some people so i thought oh for sure i'll be in the three to five year <laughs> range yep i'm now in year seven i see but I, i'm definitely every year i am improving hmm. but that i i will say that that fifth year was very hard because that was when i was like oh, okay i'm nowhere near being better I'm interested um, just because my dad had chronic fatigue syndrome um, right. and his was sparked through Ross River fever um, oh, when he was yeah. sort of in his middle age um, and it hit him so hard um, and really had a, quite a big impact on our life as a family. Oh, um, of course. But I'm also the parent of two boys with special needs and suffer with like some mild anxiety and depression myself so I'm very open about it but also a big advocate for using your creativity to um, promote wellness because um, yeah. I really look back at the past 10 years of my own life and go oh I really think I've only really survived it because I've embraced my creativity um, and have sort of come a, a really big circle to the point where I have my own book out and I have my podcast and, and I just keep pushing myself through the times that are a bit hard to make myself keep doing those things did yes. you at what it was there anything did you have moments where you had to push yourself in those times oh definitely I mean there's definitely um you know, there's definitely days that are really, really hard, as I'm sure you can relate to, like, just where just the, just doing anything is is incredibly hard. And some days I can just stop and, and I don't do anything. And then other days, you know, there's a deadline. So, yeah. for example, when I first signed, because my first two books came out unagented. And this was the book that got me an agent. So I'd sent it off to this agent and I kind of thought the process of getting an agent was going to take about six months or you know however long um and i'd left i'd left my job because i was just finding i was just finding it too hard this was after covid and i just mm. was like this is just too hard so i left my job and i thought i was going to have all this time to sort of just i really was going to focus on just recovery and then within four weeks i had an agent which because the first agent wow. i sent to um was excited about the book which was amazing and and then she um, set me up with an agent in the U.S. as well. And so the two of them gave me all this feedback and they wanted to do this big revision, which I you know, looked at their feedback and I was like, yes, this is brilliant. I can totally see why you're suggesting this. And I'm so lucky to receive this. 
but they their their deadline for it was sort of over the summer and I was like okay great like I can do this and then the fatigue was 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 quite bad and you know I pushed and pushed and pushed and I ended up needing to ask for a little bit more time because I just Mm. you know you can only do so much but I remember I remember how hard those days were like just um sitting and doing the work was was just even just physically quite hard Mm. um but I also had the again, I had the excitement of, you know, I've got these really stellar agents who are interested in this work yeah. and um, they're excited to get it out into the world and I want to work to their timeline. So that I think when you I think having that external motivation does definitely help me, but um, I prefer to not work quite that hard if I don't have to. <laughs> I don't think it's good in the long run. That's uh, one thing I sort of, because I've written a picture book, so that's yeah. really under 500 words. So it's yeah. not, um, I would love to write a novel, yeah. but I, one, I'm like, I don't know how I can fit it in. And I, I know um, many authors say, well, you just get up early and do yeah. it at five in the morning or do it at night once the kids have gone to bed. And like, literally, I'm exhausted by that time of night. <laughs> Um, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do it. But um, hearing your, you pushing through, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe I just have to be disciplined and and do it, and that will be the way to do to get through. But then I'm also like, oh, if I get to the point where I've got deadlines, will I cope? Yeah. That's, um, I'm like, yeah. will I or will I be brave enough to say, oh, actually, I need to push this back a little bit because I think that's one thing we forget to do is ask for help or let people know when things are too much um how do you deal with that um did you feel nervous when you had to ask for more time I think um I think I had flagged that I might you know Mm. like I always let everyone know that I'm dealing with the illness like I'm never I never hesitate to tell people up front about that So whenever I take on deadlines or whenever I like I have a couple of mentoring clients, for example, I always let people know, look, like this is my situation and things are can change. Um, like, for example, if I get a virus, it can really just completely knock me out and I have no control over that. So I let people know up front. So I think because of that, like and, and even with my publisher, you know, with 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 Dark Mode's release, they've been really good about asking me like, if you're doing this event on this day, can we do some book signings on this day? Or do you need more of a break? Do you need more buffer time? Oh, so that's they've been, awesome. Yeah, they've been really fantastic. Yeah. So I think, I think that's, I think foregrounding it mm. is the thing that helps me the most. But I think also in terms of what you were saying, I think the thing, I think the thing to remember about my situation is that my illness pushed almost everything out of my life. Like, yeah. I left the public speaking club. I couldn't do stand up anymore. I stopped exercising. I basically stopped leaving the house. Like I managed to hold on to my job, but I was only working like, you know, six hours a week when I first, like that first year I was sick. So I don't like, I don't have other things in my life that are putting pressure on me. Whereas Mm. like you said, like you've, you've got kids and they need a lot of your time and energy and attention and so maybe like it just might not be the right time for you right now, mm. but you're not always always going to be in that situation with your kids. Like they're going to grow true. up, they're going to be more independent. So I think also just 
looking at your situation and saying like, this might not be the right time, but cut yourself some slack because there will come a time in the future. I think that's an important thing to mention is being kind to yourself because I think we're all very hard on ourselves and we forget that it actually, nobody else is actually being that hard on you. (laughs) And I think parents tend to downplay, like I feel like parents tend to, the parents that I know that are also creatives tend to sort of downplay the huge effort that they're making as a parent, like a pa- being a parent is a, is a hugely creative act, right? Like you're like every day you're meeting new challenges and addressing new things and you've brought these people into the world and you're a huge part of shaping who they are. So I think acknowledging that like you are doing this amazing thing, like, yeah, you might not be writing the novel that you want to write at this moment, but it, like you're doing this incredible thing that is taking so much of your time and energy and like acknowledging that and yeah, being kind to yourself around that. Mm. I can keep my kids alive. All the plants are dead. But... <laughs> All my plants are dead too. It's fine. <laughs> um, now, you also have a podcast. Can you tell me about the podcast? Yeah. So my podcast is called James and Ashley Stay at Home. I co-host it with my dear friend James, who I need to, to make clear is not my partner. We are both. I'm married to someone else. He's you with stay at else. different homes. <laughs> yes, exactly. We <laughs> We realized belatedly that we should have named it James and Ashley stay at their respective homes in different cities. Um, but he, so he also lives with chronic illness. So mm. this is our author, James McKenzie Watson, whose book Denizen won the 2021 Penguin Literary Prize and oh, published, amazing. came out last year. Uh, and it's a fantastic book. Like it's so incredible. Uh, so he and I do this podcast about writing, creativity and health. Mm-hmm. And so we interview a lot of authors who also face various uh, chronic health issues. Or sometimes, for example, we talk about um, managing creative anxiety. So we talked to Kate Mildenhall about that. We interviewed an art therapist. Um, we Yeah, we've done a whole variety of interviews and really want to... I mean, I think any creative would get a lot from from the interviews that we do. But we really want to support people who likewise have chronic health issues which more and more i've come to realize is like such a large percentage of the population like Mm. so many people are dealing whether it's mental health or or um you know post-viral uh long-term ramifications or whatever it is so many people deal with chronic health issues i'm yeah still just floored about all the things you've accomplished in the last (laughs) couple of years um now, I've got a few questions that I ask all of my guests just so Fantastic. that the listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So um, my, my first question is, uh, what was your favourite book growing up? One of them was definitely the Nancy Drew Hardy Boys crossover. Oh, so yes. like I said, I'm a big crime fiction fan and that definitely came from reading Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And you you knew reading those books that those characters existed in the same world. And I was yes. kind of always like, why don't they see each other more? Like they should talk on the phone. Like, so when they finally did the crossover, the crossover novel, I was just like, I was in heaven. It was so exciting. Uh, Ashley's dream come true. (laughs) It really was. It really was. Uh, So if you could be any book character, who would it be? Oh, I love this question. This is a great question. And it's, hmm. Oh, so another book that I loved as a child was uh, Norton Jester's The Phantom Tollbooth. Do you know it? Is no, it... I don't know that one. Oh, so it's this really lovely 
older book. I think it's, I think it might be British, but it's this little boy who um, is very bored with his life. Mm. Uh, and then this toll booth, this um, like assemble your own toll booth kit shows up at his door one day, sort of mysteriously. And so he puts this little toll booth together in his bedroom and then he goes through the toll booth and then he enters this magical world oh, where he learns portal. all of these. Yeah, he oh. learns all of these wonderful things. He goes on this journey and he to these all these magical kingdoms and it's very like whimsical and witty and it does a lot of wordplay. And uh it it's just it's one of the very few books that I have reread many, mm. many times and will reread again because it just there's something about it that just captures my heart. Um, and so I think be, I think I would love to be that character in that story mm. and go on that adventure. Are you reading anything right now? I am always reading multiple things at the same time. Um, uh, one thing I am reading is The Half-Brother by Christine Kergi. Um, I don't know if I said her surname right, but she's a Melbourne-based author and uh, she's had numerous books for young people out but this is her first work of fiction for adults mm -hmm. uh and so it's it's sort of domestic noir she's calling it crime adjacent but that's out from Ultima oh, press in april okay. and i'm simultaneously reading um i've just started duck a l'orange for breakfast which is by karina may also her debut novel and it is out, uh, I think, in eight days, she said. I think late March. Oh, have you got an early copy? I have an early copy, oh. yes. I will be interviewing her, actually. The uh, advantage of uh, being a podcaster. Yes. <laughs> well, interesting story about Karina May. So she ended up writing that uh, uh, that book in part because she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Okay. And then she ended up um, writing about that. Her main character in the book has a brain tumor. So we're interviewing her about that sort of that journey that she went on in terms of her diagnosis and treatment. Okay. If you could invite five literary people to dinner, who would they be? Five literary people. And I'm assuming this can be dead or alive or yep. anyone okay. you like. Excellent. Well, I would really, really love to meet Kurt Vonnegut. I've yep. always, I love his books. Slaughterhouse-Five was one of my favorite, favorite books of all time. Uh, so I'd love to meet Kurt Vonnegut. And then I think um, it would be really smart for me. The smart thing for me to do would be to invite a bunch of like top of their game crime authors. Mm, and then just That would be exciting. Yeah. And then just be like, how, how like, how do you do it? Like Karen Slaughter, for example, mm. like she puts out a book a year and they're brilliant and the writing is so strong. Just like how, like, how do you write this well this fast? It's it's. I think What's she has several secret? clones. Of her, yeah, she has several clones of herself that she's handcuffed to typewriters. That's like that's clearly <laughs> her secret. Um, so Karen Slaughter, uh, Oya Ken Braithwaite, the author of My Sister the Serial Killer, um, just because her style is so different and so compelling. Um, U.S. author John Sanford, who's a who's a police procedural author, who I just I absolutely love. I've been following his series. Um, the police got this a series where all the titles have the word prey in them, P R E Y. Oh, so like okay. mortal prey and chosen prey. And, uh, yeah, he's got like 33 books in that series and I've been reading it for 20 years. Would love to love to talk to him. And I need one more crime author. Um, you know, oh, there's just so many people I could choose. It's like, 
who who is my final choice? I like I'd be interested oh Candace Fox. Let's go with mm-hmm. Candace Fox. Who who I have had the pleasure of meeting, but who I also just think is incredibly amazing and would really round out that conversation. Yeah, you'd be having a great night. Yeah. Maybe you'd yes. want to go home. I don't know what Kurt Vonnegut would make of it. I think he'd have a good time. He seems mm. like he strikes me as someone who could make conversation with anyone. And now, what advice would you give yourself if you could go back to the beginning of your writing journey? Oh, my gosh. If I could go back to the very beginning, I would tell myself to immediately join my State Writers Centre mm-hmm. uh, and start learning about the industry and also to get the idea out of my head that I knew what I was doing. Because I think... I think the thing was, like, when I was young, um, I wrote a lot, and I took creative writing courses, and I won some short story awards, and so I think I got it in my head, and all my teachers were like, oh, you're really good at this, and so I was like, okay, like, and I was an avid reader, so to me, all I had to do was sit down and write the book, Mm. and then it would be published, and then I would have the career, like, that's all I had to do, but I didn't, like I said, when I started writing that book about Armenia, I didn't have the writing skills like I had some good foundational basics, but I did not have the skills to pull off a like a book length work. Mm. And also I didn't know enough about the industry. And the fact that best illustrates that is that the first draft of that book was 200,000 words because I didn't wow. know. Yeah, so you're you just amazing. didn't stop. <laughs> well, I did. <laughs> I've done all this research. I interviewed about 140 people on three continents to like write that book. And then I was just like, all of it was really interesting to me. Mm. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just like put it all into the first draft. So like I, you know. You could have volumes. If I had known I should have been aiming for 80,000 words, I would have taken a whole different approach Mm. to, to writing that first draft. And it was very, very good in terms of learning for me to then, as I then started learning about the industry to go from 200,000 words down to 75,000 words over, you know, eight drafts. Like that was a really useful process, but also it took way longer than it needed to. Mm. So I think those two pieces of advice would have, would have made such a difference. I think too, that um, topic that you're working on, how do you decide what's important and what's not important? Like, cause it, yeah. it is all important. But you've got to bring it down to a work that people will then pick up and read. Um, yes. So it, it is a challenge. And I'm I'm brief is my problem. I'm very succinct with my writing. Uh, <laughs> so yes. that's why I've gone 200,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you interview 140 people and they're all really interesting people, <laughs> it's easy to get I'll have enough chapters words. then. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. So that was, uh, yeah, that was a, like it was it was a really good learning process but it just it ate up it did eat up a lot of years of my life that I could have probably used more effectively but you don't know what you don't know is the problem and so now that you've got through dark mode what's next well I am really hoping to stay in the psychological thriller space going forward so I'm on contract for the next book, which is really exciting. And it is also a psychological thriller. Thank you. So yeah, this is the next one's a psychological thriller. It's not a sequel to Dark Mode, but it's very much in the same vein, like Mm. similar atmosphere, similar tone. But where Dark Mode is set in like a plus 30 degree summer in Sydney, 
Uh, the next book is set in a minus 30 degree winter in Canada. So it's in a very, very different setting uh, and environment. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited about that. I've been enjoying writing that. Uh, so and hopefully, you know, hopefully if Dark Mode connects with enough readers and it gets out there enough, then I'll be able to um, continue writing writing more psychological thrillers and I just am envisioning you know 20 years in the future I've got a whole big shelf just Amazing. like in the crime section there it's all <laughs> all crime novels well thank you so much for spending some time with me and my listeners today um and yeah I'm really appreciate you sharing some of your journey especially for those listeners that may be also dealing with some chronic illnesses it's good to hear that experience that you've accomplished so much thank you well, thank you for inviting me on. And yeah, thank you for asking about the chronic illness issues. I really do appreciate having the chance to talk about them. Thank you. Writing stories for children can seem like a very simple task, but there is a skill involved in bringing memorable characters and their worlds to life. Anyone can write a picture book, but not everyone can write a picture book that becomes a child's favorite bedtime story. The best children's picture books fire up their imaginations, evoke emotion, and stay within their memories forever. Authors Online was created to provide aspiring authors the knowledge, skills, and resources they need to become a published children's book author. Our extensive industry knowledge will be shared with you and provide you with the basic principles behind writing for children, picture book publishing guidelines, and updates on the current market and publishing environment. And as a special offer for Totally Lit listeners, if you go to authorsonline.com.au, you can apply the discount code of LIT20, that's lit two zero to access discount content at authorsonline.com.au. Totally Lit is an independent podcast. You can help support us to continue to chat with wonderful Australian creatives by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our socials with your friends. You can also make a contribution at buymeacoffee.com backslash totally lit. This will also help with equipment and podcasting platform fees. I love to interact with our listeners, so feel free to say hello either by email or social media. You can email me at totallylitpodcast at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook, Insta, LinkedIn and Twitter and TikTok. We also have a group on Facebook called the Totally Lit Writing Community. It's a space to continue the conversation and share your writing successes, events, launches and latest projects. Jump into the group and say hello. Thank you for listening to Totally Lit and don't forget to go out into the world to read, write, create, ignite.